So we are beginning a new sermon series this morning in the book of Ephesians. We'll be going through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. So now beginning this new series in the book of Ephesians, this is a letter of the Apostle Paul addressed to the church in Ephesus. And we see this in the very first verse. As is typical in a letter in the first century, it begins by identifying the author and the recipients. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul identifies himself as the author and as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul was a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by his own will, but chosen by God for this task according to the will of God. Then for the audience, still in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, The audience is the saints in Ephesus, or the church, the Christians in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And this city was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at that time. So the sheer number of people in this city would have been intimidating to a missionary church planner like Paul. But Paul knew that the gospel by the power of God, can make an impact wherever and whenever God chooses. And Ephesus also had a strong culture of beliefs contrary to the Christian faith. The city was known for all kinds of different forms of paganism. There was a strong influence of Roman emperor worship, the imperial cult. 
there was the Greek influence. The headquarters of the cult of the Roman goddess Diana was there. And this was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But Paul continued his mission there. Not only to convert people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to disciple them. To help them continue to grow in their faith and continue to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Now, the earliest manuscripts we have of this do not contain the words in Ephesus. And so this leads many to believe that this was what is called a circular letter. It, it was a letter meant to circulate around a group of churches throughout Asia Minor. But either way, when we read Paul's letters to a particular church or even to a group of churches, being the word of God, that means God meant that this letter serves not only a particular people in a particular place and time, but this letter would serve his people throughout the rest of history. And so for us, the implications will be clear. We live in a large city, packed with people. We live in a culture that is often hostile to Christianity and the gospel, similar to Ephesus. So as we study this book of Ephesians, we'll see what Paul has to say to us as the church. Now in this letter, the general outline is Paul first lays out in the first three chapters all that God has done in Christ. He gives us all the benefits which are brought to us by Christ, the blessings for those who believe in the gospel. Then in the second half of the letter, the last three chapters, he tells us how to walk in Christ. He warns all believers, those that are in Christ, being instructed in the truth of the gospel to lead a holy life. So that's why the title of this series is Christ and the Church. Because through studying this letter, we will see what it means to be in Christ and what this demands of us as Christians. Now in the opening of this letter, the first ten verses that we'll study this morning, Paul lays out, blessings that we have in Christ and they are reasons that we should praise God and so we're going to focus on three blessings God has given you in Christ that you can praise him for this morning the first blessing is being chosen by the father the second is being adopted in the son and the third is being redeemed by the son so after introducing himself and his audience, Paul gives a typical greeting in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he immediately jumps into a praise of God. In verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's praising God. Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as we go through these unbelievable blessings that God has bestowed upon all who believe in his son, remember to praise God for them. They are not simply theological knowledge to know and understand, but they are spiritual blessings. Spiritual realities, gifts of God's grace. As we sing every Sunday in the doxology... Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And so when we sing this, it's natural to think about 
praising God for physical and material blessings since we sing it right after we receive the offering. And every material thing is a blessing from God. Our very lives are a blessing from God. Every breath you take is a blessing. But to praise God for all blessings would include spiritual blessings as well, which is what Paul is doing here in the first half of chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to list these spiritual blessings. Starting in verse 4, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him. That is, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this is the first blessing that Paul is listing. The first blessing that God has given you in Christ that you can praise him for is being chosen by the Father. Now this is referred to in theology as the doctrine of election. Election is God's sovereign choice of individuals to receive his favor before they have done anything good or bad. It's not a choice that is based on the actions or choices of that person, but is based solely on God's sovereign grace. It means that everyone who is saved by grace through faith was chosen by God for this reality. And God made this choice before he even made all of creation from nothing before the foundation of the world. Now, there are a few issues that people commonly have with this doctrine. One response is, if God chooses everyone before the foundation of the world, what about free will? It's asking the question, doesn't God give us a free will to either choose or reject the offer of the gospel? And it's true now that the gospel is freely offered to everyone to either choose or reject. But the Bible teaches something different about the human will. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? By the heart now in the Bible, it's important to understand that this means the whole inner life of a person. It means the mind, the emotions, the desires, and the will. Our ability to choose is affected by sin. The Bible teaches us that we're spiritually dead in our sins. We're enslaved to sin. Humans are born into a sinful nature. And therefore, we're born with wills that are not completely free. The Westminster Confession has a whole chapter on free will. And in the confession, it states that God gave humanity a will with natural liberty in that we're not forced or we don't have any necessity of nature to choose good or evil. We do make our own choices, and we are responsible and accountable for those choices. But Adam and Eve were actually made with a free will prior to the fall. But after the fall, Adam and Eve and and all of humanity with them fully lost the ability to do any spiritual good. After the fall, our wills are not free to choose good. We're captive to our own sinful desires. We repeatedly and consistently from birth choose ourselves 
instead of God. And we would never choose God on our own. Everyone is allowed to choose God. It's not that we lack permission. It's simply something that the natural human state wouldn't do on their own. Now, people often confuse this aspect of Reformed theology and the doctrine of election. It doesn't deny that a part of saving faith is making a personal choice with your own will to follow Jesus Christ and to embrace him as your Lord and Savior. You must, with your own will, choose to believe in the gospel, choose to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But in your natural state, you wouldn't do this because you're born into a state of sin. Your will isn't completely free. It's in bondage to sin. You're born with a nature that serves sin as its master. And you will choose yourself in sin every time over God and Christ. And this is what the doctrine of election really is about. This is what the Bible teaches us. This isn't a doctrine of man that we would have come up with. It's a doctrine of divine revelation that the Bible reveals to us. That you did choose to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation with your own will, but only because God chose you first. God chose you and all of the elect before the foundation of the world. And when the time came, you were regenerated. The Holy Spirit came upon you and brought you to spiritual life. And in this, God gave you a new heart. He renewed your will. And now you can choose him. There's a conversion that comes about and it was brought about by God. You're chosen for salvation, not because of anything you would do or any decision you would make, but by the sovereign will of God for his own glory and by his grace. God chooses and changes his people just as he has always done for anyone who has ever come to faith. The Apostle Paul himself is a perfect example of God sovereignly choosing someone for salvation. He sovereignly chose Paul, he changed him, and then he, made him, he called him to serve his purposes. Paul even describes himself in the opening letter, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul knows that he didn't choose to be apostle on his own. He didn't even choose Christ on his own. God chose him first. Then Paul chose to believe in Jesus Christ. Then he chose to go out spreading the message of the gospel. He was living his life as a persecutor of anyone who believed in Jesus Christ. But on the faithful day to the road, on the road to Damascus, he was not only a believer in Christ, but he became one of the most impactful people in the name of Jesus Christ who has ever lived. But God didn't even choose Paul right before his conversion. Paul's telling us in Ephesians is he did it before the foundation of the world. And he chose each and every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ in this same way. We wouldn't choose Christ with our own wills until God sends the Holy Spirit to renew our wills. And he chose the people he would do this to before the foundation of the world. Now, another issue people have with election is if God sovereignly chooses people to bring them to a saving faith, then why doesn't he choose everyone? Now, this one is a little bit more difficult to answer from Scripture because the Bible isn't always clear about the answer to the question, why? We don't always get to know exactly and fully why God does everything. We know that his ways are higher than our ways. We know that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
I think our finite brains can't understand everything about the ways of God. But Tim Keller actually once addressed this issue pretty well about people wondering why doesn't God elect everyone to salvation. He acknowledges that ultimately it is a mystery and it's a difficult question. But he also rightly states that this can't effectively be used as an argument against election. He said, suppose election is not true. Suppose that eons ago God set up salvation on this system. Every person will have an equal ability to accept or reject Christ, who will die and be raised and be presented through the gospel message. The moment God determines to set up salvation on that system, he would have immediately known exactly which persons would be saved and which would be condemned on that basis. So the minute he set it up, he would be de facto electing some and passing over others. We come out to the same place. God could save all, but he doesn't. So we don't fully know why, but we do know what. We do know what God does. He, God chose his people before the foundation of the world. And we also know that God does everything for his glory. So God reaches down from heaven and resurrects some who are spiritually dead. He elects some to salvation to receive his mercy and his grace, to be adopted as his children for his own glory. And some are left to their sin, and they get justice and wrath. They don't get injustice. They don't get anything they don't deserve. And God is glorified in all of this. Some get mercy and grace. Some get justice. All to the glory of God. And so you can praise God. You can praise God for choosing you in Christ so that you receive all the blessings Christ deserved. Praising God for choosing to bring you to faith, to bring you to new spiritual life and to salvation in Jesus Christ. Praise God for the blessing of being holy and blameless before him in Christ only because he chose you for this. But election... Being chosen by the Father isn't the only blessing in Christ that Paul lists here. The only thing we should praise God for. He says in verse 5, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God's election is done in love. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. But he predestined us in love for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now Paul's saying what God chooses people for. God chose you for adoption as his son or daughter through Jesus Christ. And this is the second blessing God has given you in Christ that you can praise him for. Adoption in the son. We're adopted as children of God only in Jesus Christ. And this is a gift of God's grace. It's not something you earn. It's not something you're entitled to. It's through the grace of God that you're brought into the family of God for adoption. It's only those who are in Jesus Christ who are adopted into God's family. Because you can only call God your father through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus alone provides access to the father through his finished work on the cross. And it's such a profound truth to be adopted into the family of the Almighty God. 
Now, there's an interesting story I read from the time of Queen Victoria in England. It was during the middle of the 19th century. There was a little girl from Nigeria whose village was raided. Her parents were killed and she was captured. And after some time in imprisonment, she was freed by the British and brought before the queen. And the queen took one look at her and she fell in love. And she immediately adopted this little girl as her daughter. And so this little girl all of a sudden lived the extravagant life of British royalty. She went from being an an imprisoned five-year-old orphan to Princess Sarah. She went from a prison cell to the best schools, eating the best food, and attending all the most prestigious events, living the high life. And as amazing as this story is, how much greater is our adoption into God's family? Because, first of all, how much worse is our initial condition? We all start as sinners against a holy God. And we stand condemned before him. And we're sinful by natures. We're enslaved to it. We can't get ourselves out of it. But in his mercy and grace, God sacrificed his son so that we may become his sons and daughters. So that we can now come into his presence and we can be with him for eternity. Our grasp of being adopted as children of God is key to fully appreciating the benefits of being in Christ. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer sums up the importance of this doctrine. He wrote, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He goes on to say that for everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So being adopted into God's family is to receive God's name. It's to have access to God's throne, his pity, his protection, his provision, his discipline, his promise to never abandon you. And this is a blessing in Jesus Christ that God has chosen for you before the foundation of the world. Being adopted in Christ means to have a right to all of the privileges that Jesus Christ himself deserves as the Son of God. And this is all according to the purpose of his will. This is what God chooses people for, to be adopted into his family. As Paul says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So you can praise God for his glorious grace. Praise him for the blessing of being chosen in Christ, to being adopted into his family through the work of Jesus Christ. And now you can call the God of the universe, the creator of all things, your father. And he loves you with a love beyond your wildest imagination. But Paul's not done. He tells us that we're chosen by God, In Christ, before the foundation of the world, he tells us we're chosen for adoption into God's family. And now he tells us how this is accomplished. 
In verse 7 he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this is the third blessing we see this morning that God has given you in Christ. Redemption through the blood of Christ. The word redemption means to secure the release or the recovery of something that has been held captive by the payment of a price. It's a legal term. It's closely related with ransom, atonement, substitution, deliverance, and therefore salvation. For Christians, redemption refers ultimately to the saving work of Jesus Christ. That Christ came into the world to accomplish our redemption by giving his life in substitution for ours as the ransom price. Our redemption by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can't be overstated. Your redemption was needed because of sin, because of both your personal sin and the sinful nature you inherited through Adam. And this sin took away the righteousness God intended for your life. It held you in bondage to Satan's purposes for you. And without Christ providing his sacrifice on the cross on your behalf, you would exist continually and eternally in a prison of guilt and shame. And there's no way you could have gotten yourself out of this. The sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be someone who lived perfectly under the law to die in your place. And Jesus Christ is the only one who ever could have done this. The price for your ransom from the captivity of sin is the sacrifice of the Son of God. Jesus gave the gift of his life so that you could be freed from captivity, from the bondage to sin. And this redemption was accomplished on the cross. And we hear and say this so often that the danger is that it can start to lose its effect. We can start to lose the magnitude of this. We who were made in the image of God, but through the fall of Adam and Eve, we became enslaved to sin, bound to its penalties. And the penalties of sin are all the miseries of this life, death itself, and the pains of hell. But God so loved you that he sent his only son to die on your behalf as a sacrifice in your place. You were purchased with a price, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The shedding of his blood means you've been redeemed from sin and death and that all of your sins are forgiven. Through Christ dying on the cross, the debt of your sins has been canceled out. Not only have you been redeemed from original sin, that is the sinful human nature that you inherited, but the punishment for each and every actual sin you've committed and that you will continue to commit. They've all been paid. And this is according to the riches of his grace. This is who God is. People fairly wonder why God hasn't chosen everyone. But another question is, why has he chosen anyone for this? He doesn't owe anyone anything. And he has chosen some from all eternity, according to the riches of his grace, for adoption to himself, to be redeemed by the blood of his son. May we not ever take this lightly. May we not ever casually consider this tremendous gift God has bestowed upon you. May your heart always sing his praises when you hear this truth, that God chose you to be one of the people who receives the gift of his grace and his mercy 
through the sacrificial death of his son on a cross. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because this is the beauty of the doctrine of election, that it gives all the glory to God. It gives all the credit for your salvation to the one who deserves it, God himself. So you can praise him that he chose you for all the blessings that come in Jesus Christ. Praise God that he chose you for adoption into his royal family through the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God that he chose you for redemption and forgiveness of your sins. Now there are two final applications I want to make of this. First is answering the question I often hear when people talk about this. That some of you may even have. How do I know if I've been chosen? And the fact that you would even ask this question is a sign of the spirit in you. The average person couldn't care less if God has chosen them for anything. They usually want nothing to do with God or his ways. If you ask someone on the street, has God chosen you for faith? They'd probably say, get away from me. So if you're wondering whether or not God has chosen you, that means you care. It's the Holy Spirit that shows you your sin. It's the Holy Spirit that enlightens your mind and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and renews your will. And it's the same Spirit that persuades you and enables you to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to you in the gospel. If you know you're a sinner and you know that Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death is the only solution to the situation you're in, that's your evidence. Only the Holy Spirit can come and convince you of this. You wouldn't come to that conclusion on your own. Sometimes we overcomplicate it. We think that there has to be some dramatic conversion or some concrete sign. But the truth is that the natural human heart does not accept the truth of the gospel. And that's why it takes God changing our hearts and our wills. And so if you believe that you're a sinner and that there's no way to get yourself out of it, that you're a sinner that needs to be redeemed by the grace of God and that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, that's plenty of evidence that God has chosen you and sent you his spirit. Now, the second question that frequently gets asked when you're discussing election is, if God has already chosen those who will be saved, does that mean we don't have to pray or evangelize or do anything at all for the people who are lost? So first, we should thank God that everything is planned by him. Because it's a scary thought to think that the outcome of someone's salvation would be dependent upon me or, or any of us. I don't even want to consider that someone could spend eternity in hell because I didn't do a good enough job evangelizing or preaching the gospel. I don't think anyone wants that burden. The truth is you are to evangelize and pray because you have the privilege to share in God's work with him. It's like when a father asks a son to help him fix something around the house, not because he needs his help, but because he wants to include him so they can share in this work together and in this experience together. Or when a mother asks her daughter to help with cooking or baking, I'm sure she could bake the brownies herself, but she wants to share this experience together and grow together through it. God doesn't rely on us to bring someone to faith, but he includes us in his work. He includes you because he loves you. The incentive is the privilege to work with your heavenly father in the most amazing work, his bringing people to salvation. And you get to do it without any of the pressure of the outcome. 
the outcome is completely in his hands. And also, you shouldn't second-guess God. We're not out here trying to guess who the elect are. God calls everyone to repentance, and so should you. No one is hopeless. God can work in anyone's heart. No one is too far gone, no matter how much of a skeptic they may seem to be. If the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will believe in the gospel. And so God's absolute sovereignty is a motivation to evangelize, not a discouragement. It's an encouragement to pray for the souls of others and to take part in God's amazing work of salvation. The next person you pray for, the next person you evangelize to, may be one of the elect. And you may be a part of the way God has ordained to bring this person to faith. And so as you go about your lives, your work week, your daily life, you can praise God for all of his blessings. Continue to tell people about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Tell them about your story and live a life of love and gentleness that shows a life changed by the gospel. And God may grant you the privilege of using you to bring about the faith in one of his elect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we have empty hands, that you are the sovereign God, the giver of all good things. We praise you in your glory for all the blessings you bestow upon us, the material blessings in this world and the spiritual blessings in Christ, that you chose us before the foundation of the world for adoption into your royal family, that you redeemed us by the blood of your Son, that we may be holy and blameless before you. Lord, we pray that you will continue to work in our hearts, that we may have the courage to proclaim the gospel of your Son to everyone, that we may be confirmed in our election and stand firm in our faith as we continue forward, waiting till the day till your Son returns. In his precious name we pray. Amen.